0: Hey, um, do you know the golden rule? Could you, could you quote it like that? Do you know what the golden rule is? Um, we're going to say it out loud together, but I didn't want to put you on the spot because I didn't know if you knew it or not, so they're going to put it up on the screen for us on both campuses so we can say it. Let's, let's do this out loud together. Here it is, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. It's a pretty good rule for living by don't you think? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, most of us were taught this really simple and yet very moral ethic for living as children. It went something like this Don't hit your sister. You don't want your sister to hit you. Don't bite the kid in your class. How would you like it if he bit you? Right? Don't lie. You don't want people lying to you. Don't don't, uh, take something that doesn't belong to you. You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. It's good instruction. It's really great parenting to teach our children to live by the golden rule. Most of us know it, but what many of us don't realize is that the golden rule emanates from the teaching of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? The golden rule is in scripture. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 12, listen to what this verse says. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would, that men should do unto you, do you even unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. What you have in King James English, from the words of the mouth of Jesus, is the golden rule. Do unto others, as you would have them do unto you. Therefore, whatever things you would that men would do unto you, you should do also unto them. But what I find particularly interesting in Matthew 7 and verse number 12 is that that statement, that golden rule statement, is then ended with this statement. Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets. For this is the law and prophets. By the way, can I ask you a question? Does that statement, this is the law and prophets, or this is the summary of the law and prophets, or this, this encapsulates the law and prophets, does that statement sound familiar to you? Do, you? do you remember that statement maybe from last Sunday as we were talking about the greatest commandment? We were reading it in Deuteronomy 6 and in Mark 12 last week, but you'll find it also in the text I asked you to turn to today in Matthew Chapter number 22, let me read it to you. Look in verse number 36, Matthew 22 and verse number 36. So the question is asked, Master, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, this is our lesson last week, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And then verse 39, and the second is like it, or the second greatest commandment is like it. Here it is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, verse 40, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. There's that statement again. So in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus says, live by the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you, for the whole law and prophets hangs upon this. And in Matthew chapter 22, he says it again, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, heart, mind, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love others as yourselves, and on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Simply put, this golden rule, this second commandment, second great commandment, is in fact the golden rule. And what Jesus says is that everything else in the law hinges upon or points to or is encapsulated in that Golden rule. Have you ever considered how many times the Bible commands us to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves? Many, many, many times. Let me give you just a few examples. Leviticus 19 and verse number 18 says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Let me just stop right there. I could stop and preach for a minute, couldn't I? You shall not hold a grudge. You shall not take vengeance. But rather, he says in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, but rather you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, then he goes on to say, well, I am the Lord. So this is my command. Galatians 5 and verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13 and verse number 9, for the commandments, the commandments like you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, these are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do, do you see what, what's happening in the, in the scriptures over and over and over? What the Bible is saying is w- we, when you take it all and distill the commandments of God down into what, does it, uh, what matters, what is it that you're saying to us? He says, I want you to love God and I want you to love your neighbor. James chapter 2 verse number 8 says something uh, similar. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. I think you'd agree with me that God puts a high priority on this command that we love one another. So I want you to do something right quickly. Just turn to your neighbor and look at him. I don't know if you know him or not, but just say, hey man, I love you. Just tell him, I love you. Now, that might seem overly simplistic and very shallow, and it is, but we're going to talk about why we did that in just a minute. Hey, so welcome to week number three of five weeks where we're thinking together about five to survive. In these weeks, we're considering this great word of advice that we received from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 where he says, For let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What's, what's the end, at the end of the day, what do we need to know? And Solomon tells us. We should fear the Lord and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so in these weeks together, we're considering what are some of the most important commandments that God has ever given us, not minimizing any of them, but seeking to discover what are the five, the top five anyway, commandments that God might have given to us. Two weeks ago, we began in the book of James where we heard that command of God where he said, pure religion, undefiled religion before God the Father is this, that you would love orphans or visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. We, we learned on that week about the value God places on the weak and the hurting and our command, the command he has given us to go and to help them and to lift them up. And by the way, I don't know if you know this yet or not, but on that particular Sunday, we introduced that Bigogwe project where Brookstone is, is sponsoring an entire Compassion International project in the northern mountains of Rwanda, 250 children that needed to be adopted. And I'm happy to tell you Brookstone Church adopted all 250 of them and a few more from some other places because we had more than 250. So that's awesome. Way to go. Pure religion and undefiled. In week number two, last week, we talked about this idea uh, that I've been mentioning this morning of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And today, obviously, we're talking about loving your neighbors, yourself, or loving one another. Now, before we get into the passage that I really want us to dive into today, I need to spend just a minute um, talking about this thing of love. Because just a moment ago, I had you turn to the person sitting next to you and say, I love you, and that felt very shallow. And the truth is, most expressions of love in our contemporary culture uh, fail to live up to the biblical idea of what real love really is. For us, very often, love is a very shallow, or expressions of love are very shallow expressions of a very Uh, shallow and oftentimes selfish emotion. Now part of the problem is we only have in English one word for love. And it's the word love, right? So we use this four letter L-O-V-E, this word to express our affection for someone or our feeling about something or our attraction to something. We use the same word to express all those things. Right, so when I say I love Tracy, my wife Tracy, you you know what I mean by that. I love her. It's a a devoted kind of love, it's a romantic love, it's a a love that's an old love now. Almost 40 years I've been loving her. I, I love Tracy, you know exactly what I mean. When I say in the next breath, I love my grandmother, well, It means something similar, but obviously it means something different as well, right? But I use the same word to express it. If I say I love Tracy and I love my grandmother, you automatically are able to to tease out the differences between the way I love my grandmother and the way I love my wife. And then if I say in the next sentence, I love potato chips, and I do, by the way, love potato chips. I think there will be potato chips at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I believe it. But if I say, I love potato chips, well, you know what I mean. I, I don't mean that I love potato chips the way that I love my grandmother, and I certainly don't mean that I love potato chips the way that I love my wife. I just mean that potato chips are good, I like the way they taste, and, and, and I like or I, I love potato chips. My, my point is, I could go on and on, my point is we use the same word. I love sunsets, I love the beach, I love, I love uh, Whoppers, I, I love, I love, I love. And so because we use the word love to describe these feelings of attraction or affection uh, that we feel for everything and everyone, so often it just becomes this oversimplified, uh, weak declaration. What we're saying is I have affection for this person or I I find pleasure in this thing. Now here's the wonderful thing about scripture though. In the Bible, there are three primary Greek words that are all translated love. There, there are actually four, but, but there, is, there, there are three primary, uh, primarily. And many of you know this. One of those words is the word phileo. And so the word phileo is a brotherly kind of love. It's, phileo love is a love that responds to kindness so uh, I, I'm a friend to you and, and you're a friend to me. I love you and you love me back. Uh, the city of Philadelphia, many of you know, is uh, this word Philadelphia comes from, from this idea of brotherly love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So, so brotherly love or phileo is this kind of love where... You know somebody comes into the room and they're nice and they're kind and they're engaging and they're winsome and they tell jokes and they and they they're, they they leave the room and you go I love that guy I just love it when he's around it's brotherly kind of love. Now, there's another word in the Bible that describes love and it's the word the Greek word eros A- and this would be the word for romantic love or for passion or passionate love or emotional. Love. This would be the love between a husband and a wife, for instance. So again, you would use a different word if you were describing how you loved your wife as opposed to how you loved your friend if you were speaking the Koine Greek. Then there's a third word, which many of you know, which is the word agape. And agape is divine love. It's God's love. It is love that cherishes no matter what. It is love that is faithful and continues, listen carefully, agape love, unlike phileo, does not depend on the way that you love me in order for me to love you back. Uh, agape love keeps on loving regardless of whether or not that love is reciprocated. Agape love is a love that is demonstrative or benevolent, that is, it acts in loving ways Maybe one of the best ways to say it is that agape love is not an emotion it's so much as it is an action. It's not a noun. It is a verb. And so this is what Kim and the other ladies here at uh, this campus, Johnny over at, Weaver, at the uh, Merriman campus, were singing earlier that they will, brethren, they will know us by our what? Shout it out. They'll know us by our Our, our love. What that song says and what scripture teaches, listen carefully, is that believers' lives are not distinctive, they're not not distinct by emotion or affection or expressions, they are made distinctive by our actions. What sets the life of a believer apart is the way in which we love, not the way in which we say that we love? Agape. Now, the, the word agape is found in the New Testament. It's translated in the New Testament um, a little more than 300 times. Almost all of those times in the King James is translated love. If you have a more modern translation of the Bible, every time it's translated love. But in the King James, about 10% of the time, the word agape is not translated uh, love, love it's translated charity, charity. And I really think that this word charity gets to the point of agape because the word charity helps us to understand this idea of active benevolence, of loving in such a way that it loves to the benefit, or we love to the benefit of another. And it is this kind of love, this kind of agape, consistent, persistent uh, non-reciprocal, not only waiting to be loved and then I love in return, but this, this faithful divine love that God calls us to. And so you're, you're holding your place in 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you will be aware that 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the great love chapter. We're gonna end up there in just a minute, but as you're making your way there, I wanna show you three other passages along the way. So just real quickly, I'm not gonna preach these at all, but I, I want you to turn to them because I want you to mark them in your Bible. So go to Colossians, if you will, uh, chapter number 3. So Colossians you'll find right after uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, and then you'll come uh, to, uh, to Colossians. So look in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 14. If you have a pen, I want you to, I want you to highlight or make a star next to this verse and, uh, and never, miss, never forget what this says. So Colossians 3:14 says, "And above all." would you mind say that out loud with me? Above all. One more time. Above all What's that mean? Like, this is first, right? This is top priority. Um, in advance of everything else. When everything else fades away, above all these things, put on that is on your life, charity. Agape, which is the bond of perfectness, the King James, King James says. Or he says that charity, that kind of love that we're called to demonstrate, is the bond that holds us together. If you're, if you're listening, shout amen. What holds relationships together? What holds fellowship together? What holds, what holds us together is the fact that we love one another, we have charity for one another, not shallow, selfish expressions of love, I love you because you love me, but I simply love you. And I love you with this benevolent, consistent, faithful, persistent kind of love. It is the bond of unity what holds us together. All right, so you've got that one, Mark, Colossians 3.14. Then turn to 1 Timothy Chapter number one. So just keep going forward, you'll go through Thessalonians, and then you'll be in Timothy. First Timothy, chapter one. and look with me in verse number five. So First Timothy 1:5, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, "Now the end or the goal of the commandment. Stop right there. Here's what he says, "Everything that I'm teaching you and everything that I'm teaching you to teach others." should all end up in this place the goal that we're trying to accomplish what what the word of god what the commandments of god what the spirit of god is working to produce within us the goal of it all is this in our lives charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned or authentic faith here's what he says Here's what I want you to know, Timothy, if you take everything that I'm saying, here's what we're trying to accomplish, that we would, we would live out of a pure heart with an authentic faith that expresses itself to those around us in charity, in agape love. All right, you've got that one, marked. 1 Timothy 1 and verse number 5. This is the end or the goal of the commandment. Keep turning forward to 1 Peter chapter 4. So go right through the book of Hebrews. And you'll be in James and then 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, and look at verse number 8. 1 Peter 4 and verse number 8. So Peter writes, and above all things. Would you say those words with me? Above all. One more time, you didn't say it like you meant it. Above all things. This is tops. This is the first foot. This is the goal. This is what we want to accomplish. This is what's going to matter at the end of the day. Above all things, have fervent, passionate charity among yourselves. Why should we do that? I love this. For charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Now, look around. We are a multitude of sinners. And because we are sinners, our lives have, we're infected with multitudes of sins. And here's the reality of every one of our lives and all of our relationships. When we are in relationship with one another, we are at some point along the way gonna disappoint one another because we're all human and we're all gonna fail. And this is the reason that we don't need to expect perfection from one another, we need to expect love from one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. What does it mean? It means that it knows about them and it loves anyway. It pushes right through the failures and the faults and the mistakes and it clings to that person in love anyway. This is what God calls believers to, look, to be like. This is above all. This is the goal of the commandment that we would love in this way. All right, All of that to get us to 1 Corinthians 13, which most of you could quote part of it anyway without even turning. But don't do that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could with my faith remove mountains, if I do not have charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, if I have not charity, profits me nothing. Charity suffers long and is kind. Charity does not envy. Charity does not vaunt itself. It is not puffed up. It doth not behave itself unseemly, nor seek her own. Charity is not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Charity bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never fails. Skip down to verse 13, if you will. And now abides faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the, what's the word? Say it out loud with me. The greatest of these is charity. Really simple thing I want you to know today. Jot it down if you will. It's just that Paul would say to us that nothing matters more than how we love. Nothing. I mean, that point's already been made by our Lord Jesus, right? And 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 by Peter and by Paul. Here in this passage to the Corinthians, Paul would affirm it: nothing matters more than how we love. Now, don't misunderstand me. I mean, let's be honest, there are a lot of things in life and in the church, there are a lot of things that matter a lot. There are a lot of important issues of life that we need to be interested in and concerned about and and pursuing and achieving. You know, in life, we would say things matter like my health. My health certainly matters and my relationships matter. My happiness matters. Well-being matters. My finances matter. I could You you and I could list maybe dozens of things that are really important, vital things in life that that really matter. But what Paul says is none of those things equal. None of those things match the importance of how we love. And in fact, in the church, we know that many things matter. Chapter number 12 of 1 Corinthians is all about many things that matter in the church. In fact, if you look at verse number 8 of chapter 12, Uh, Paul deals with wisdom and knowledge and faith and miracles. All of these things matter. But Look at the end of chapter number 12. Chapter 12 and verse 31. After spending all of chapter 12 listing all of these things that matter and how they work together as the body of Christ and how they are to pursue spiritual gifts and, and these important things, he ends chapter 12 by saying, and yet... I show unto you a more excellent way. He says, with all of those things in the church that we focus on and that are so vital, there's one thing that you need to know that is all the more excellent. It's all the more worthwhile of our pursuit. And then, of course, he launches into the love chapter in chapter 13. Of course, you know that when Paul wrote, he didn't write chapter and verse, he just wrote his letter and so there's no distinction, no division, no separation between chapter 12 and chapter 13. He says, "Let me show you in a more excellent way, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal." Think about that statement, "Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels. The translation of this verse would be though I have the ability to speak multiple languages, which by the way was happening and being boasted of in the Corinthian church. Though I could speak many languages, Paul might have even been saying, if I had the ability to speak every language on the planet. Now, I'm always impressed with bilingual people or multilingual people. Um, you travel almost anywhere in the world and so many of those people in other parts of the world speak English, but they also speak two or three other languages. I'm always amazed by that. Usually we're, here in America, we're the ones that we, we only speak one language. I don't think it's because we're not as smart as them. I think it's because, uh, as in most ways, we expect the whole world just kind of do what we do. They just need to learn to speak English, Right. But anyway, I'm always impressed with people who can, who can speak multiple languages. Paul said, you know, if I had that kind of intellect, if I had that kind of, of ability to speak all of these languages, even the tongue, not just of men, but the, with, with the tongues of angels, with the eloquence of angels, if I have that kind of intellect and eloquence, and yet if I do not have love, I'm, I'm just... Annoying. Because that's what it means. A sounding brass. That's that's essentially what it means. Just beating on a piece of metal. A sounding brass. Or a tinkling cymbal. Just as rattling and it it makes no sense at all. He said, though I have eloquence and intellect, if I don't have love, it doesn't matter. Verse number two. He says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, if I have not charity, I'm nothing. He says, if I have all wisdom and faith, so much faith that I could say to the mountain, as Jesus said, be thou removed and cast into the sea, if I had the ability to speak such great faith to move mountains, and if I understood all prophecies and knew the scriptures and all of the things of God, if I do not have love, I am nothing. I'm empty. Verse number three, though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, and it, even if I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. If I have great generosity and absolute devotion, so much so that I would be willing to die for my faith, if I fail to love, it will have no Reward. Do you see the superlative nature that Paul puts upon this value of love? That nothing else matters as much as the way that we love. The second thing that Paul would say in this passage is that nothing outlasts love. Nothing. Do you see this in verse number eight? He says, Charity never fails. He goes on in verse number 8, we didn't read it, but he goes on to talk about prophecies and tongues and and knowledge and these spiritual gifts that will cease and vanish away. He's contrasting the, the temporal nature of gifts with the permanent eternal nature of love. He says nothing will outlast our love. Verse number 13, charity abides forever. I want you to know that everything in this life is going to fade away. Not only spiritual gifts, as he mentions in this passage, but physical strength and beauty, it fades away. Can I get a witness from anybody in the room? It does, doesn't it? The older we get, the weaker we get, our beauty, our strength begins to fade. And so, so those things are going to fade away and wither. Buildings and bank accounts will crumble. Years will pass, and should the Lord tarry, we'll all die. But as all these things around us, our gifts, our resources, our wealth, our bodies, and our very lives crumble and die, what will remain forever will be the way that we loved one another. Nothing will outlast love. The third thing that Paul would say is that nothing impacts a life like love does. These are this is kind of the heart of chapter number 13. It's verses four, five, six, and seven. And in these verses, Paul gets super practical. He begins to talk about the way in which love is expressed and, and how it functions within a relationship. And essentially, what he would say to us is that love is not a warm fuzzy, it, it, love is not some feeling, some emotion, something that I emote as my life drifts along off track, or as my relationship falls apart. Love is not an emotion. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. We live in the world of emotions, don't we? we everything's about how I feel about things. Everything's about emotions. We, we can't even text anymore without emojis. <laughs> right? We've gotten to the point, we can't even express our intellectual thoughts and in words. We just go, <laughs> right? Or, <laughs> it's, it's all emoji, emotional emojis. We emote. He, he says, it's not, love is not a, a feeling, a warm, fuzzy feeling that we hope stays constant. Here's what he would say in these verses. Love is like a mighty river. It's like a, a current of, of water that, that cuts through the, the, the valley and determines its own path. It makes a way. Love, and the way that we love one another, redirects our lives. And it redirects the lives of those around us. So how does that happen? How does that work? Well, let me, let me wrap up by getting really specific as Paul does with verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. How does this love work? Write it down, if you will. Verse 4, 5, and 7 tell us that love waits patiently. You know, we're all in relationships with one another, with others. We're in relationships as a church. We have family relationships. We have marriage relationships. We all live in the world of relationships, and those relationships are to be Marked by this love, which is, according to Paul, above all. Which, according to Peter, is above all. That it is the end, the goal, what God wants our lives to be marked by. And he says that in those relationships, love waits patiently. Look at verse number four. Charity is long-suffering. It suffers long and is kind. The word long-suffering means to be long-spirited, to to play for the long game, to look down the road and to to endure in the short-term difficulties along the way for the glorious outcome of the long-term. It means that we are merciful, that we're helpful over the long haul. Charity is long-suffering in its kind. He says in verse number five, charity is not easily provoked. Verse number five, it is not easily provoked. It means it's not short-tempered or irritable. Charity uh, is patient. Look at verse seven. Verse number seven, love bears all things. I love this word, by the way, bears all things. When I think of bears all things, I think of holds everything up. It it, it it sustains all things, but that's not what the word means. The word literally means to, if you're listening, say amen. 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 It means to, like like you would you would um, build a roof over to protect, to shield. Love, here's the way to say it. Love covers all things. It's the idea of a bandage. If you if you have a wound and you put a bandage on the galls and you cover it, and the covering. Uh, tends toward and, and facilitates healing. That's what love does. It bears all things. It believes all things. Now, love isn't blind. Love doesn't mean if I'm loving in my relationship that I just believe everything that this lying person has been telling me and I know they're lying, but if I love them, I have to believe them. That's not what it means at all. But it means it assumes and hopes for the best. And while in the moment, in the reality, we may know we're not getting the best, but love assumes that the best will come. It hopes all things. It expects all things. It endures. It perseveres. It endures all things. The fact is, love in a difficult relationship will bear patiently. Secondly, he says that love puts others first. Verses 4 and 5 Love does not envy. Verse number four, uh, charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envieth not. To not envy simply means that it rejoices in what is best for another. Love says, what matters most is not what is best for me. What matters most is what's best for you. I love you, therefore I will pursue what is best for you. And if I always pursue what's best for me, who do I love dearly? I love me. So he says love will not envy or love will not always want the best for ourselves. Love will pursue what is best for, for another. Love does not vaunt itself and it's not puffed up, verse 4 says. It's not self-promoting or self-protecting. It's not always about me. It's not haughty or arrogant. Verse 5 says the same thing. Love does not seek her own. It, it does not demand its own way. Thirdly, not only does love wait patiently in a relationship, and love puts others in the relationship first, but thirdly, love pursues what is pure. Love tends toward, love leans into purity. Verse 5, love does not behave itself unseemly. The word unseemly means disgracefully or dishonorably. When we love, we act with honor, and we do not behave ourselves unseemly. He says in verse number five, love thinks no evil. It's not conniving or manipulative. It has no evil intent. Verse number six, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. It never smiles at a hurt or an injustice. It rejoices and celebrates what is sincere and what is authentic. So over and over, what Paul would say is, the command of Jesus is that you would love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus even went on on the night of his arrest, took that a step further as he's telling them the Holy Spirit is coming. And he says essentially by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want you to love yourselves, not just as you uh, love your neighbors yourself, but love one another as I have loved you. He even takes the bar higher. But we love one another... And we do this because this is the goal of the commandment. This is the golden rule upon which all the law and prophets hangs. This is what Paul says repeatedly is above all, that we would love one another. So loving others looks like merciful, self-sacrificing, pure, patient devotion to what is best for another. Can I say it again? Love is not a warm and fuzzy, you make my heart go pitter-patter. Love is merciful, self-sacrificing, pure and patient devotion to what is best for another. And may I just say, if you wonder how in the world could I do that, I've never seen anybody do that. Nobody lives like that, do they? Jesus Christ has loved every one of us in this way. It is his self-sacrificing, self-sacrificing, merciful, patient devotion for us that took him to the cross and that loves us with new mercy every single morning. So pastor, who should I love this way? Who is it that I should direct my love for, uh, uh, toward? Well, Matthew five forty four, Jesus says, love your enemies. So if you just want to kind of start there and begin to work your way in, that's a good place to begin, right? God, give me grace to be patient and merciful and self-sacrificing and pure toward my enemies. Love your enemies, those who have wronged you. Secondly, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine 39 says, love your neighbor. Those we come in contact with, those that we encounter, those who know the Lord and those who don't know the Lord. Those whose lifestyles match ours and whose lives look like ours and those whose lifestyles and worldviews look nothing like ours. Love your neighbor. By the way, Jesus once gave this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And there was a particular scribe who said unto him, so who's my neighbor? Seeking to justify himself. Oh yeah, who, who should I love like that? And do you know Jesus' response in Luke 10? It was the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, that's your neighbor. The one who fell among thieves and is laying in the ditch, half dead. Love your enemies this way. Love your neighbor this way. And then love one another this way. This is the, this is the verbiage of the beloved, of the, of the church. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ this way. Let that be the, the character of our church. And then Ephesians 5 would say love your family this way. Husbands, love your wives this way. Merciful, self-sacrificing, pure and patient devotion to what is best. For your wife, for your husband, for your kids, for your siblings, for your parents. We love our families this way. Here's the point. If y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. Here's the point. That the, the scriptures tell us that there is nothing in this life that matters more than loving God and loving one another. And that when we decide that we will engage our will and love one another or love God supremely, and love one another as ourselves, even love one another as Christ loved us, then we are beginning to have lives that are becoming distinctive. Brethren, they will know us by our, say it, love. love. Let's pray together.